and welcome. Thanks for joining us again. It's March the 25th. We're joining you to chat a little bit about what's on our mind, what we're thinking about. The first thing is the perspective planting report. It's coming up at the end of the month. The consensus or the AFN questions about this are at 92.5 million acres for corn, 90 million acres of soybeans. And so the consensus on corn, again, more than 92.5 million is an 86% probability of that coming in. And soybeans, more than 90 million acres from that report, the consensus says 55% chance for that. So Brent, what are your thoughts and where you're thinking about for this report? It's really interesting. Most of the estimates that I've seen so far would suggest over 92 million acres of corn and soybeans are going to be awful close to that 90 million mark, I think is where most of them are coming in. My own forecast, I had soybeans at 65%, some fair amount above consensus on that one. And I'm also above on the corn or I'm below consensus actually on corn and I'm at 80%. So uh, I think most of the participants are feeling corn's going to be really strong, and I think that's that's accurate. Eighty percent is pretty high probability, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty comfortable with that. I think the hard part here is how do you get more than ninety and more than ninety-two point five? How do you get over one hundred eighty-two point five? I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm just saying that is itself a high bar to cross, and so I I'm below fifty percent on the soybeans because I think corn's going to have some edge here, but the soybeans, uh, I'm not sure how we allocate it among those two. Again, this is going back to what we talked about the whole time is how do we get enough of both crops is a lot of times the latest. Brent, I think there's some late breaking news on CFAP3. Is that what they're calling it? I don't I don't know what the, the phrasing of it is. I can't remember. It's CFAP. And um, if you remember, the stimulus that was passed before the new year uh, had $20 an acre in it for row crop producers. And there had been some speculation that that may not happen, but uh, it is apparently happening. So that will be more money out the door, more money for cattle producers as well, and a few other new additional monies as well, I think. So more uh, government payments headed down the road here shortly. Sort of in line with what we saw that the February net farm income estimate right? Those were a sharp decline in direct payments, but still among the highest we'd seen in the last 10 or 15 years. Big changes, but still on the high end of the historical norm. Everywhere you look right now, the economy is getting juiced. Honestly, it's, it's like hard to find a spot right now where you go, yeah, that's underperforming. And even more fiscal stimulus thrown into the into the mix. We, we shared a couple of really interesting articles. I shared it with David Larry Summers had written a pretty interesting article, kind of a critique of the stimulus. And um, it kind of gave both sides, some of the economists that are not as uh, negative to it. So it seemed like everybody was saying, yeah, the economy is going to be good. That was seemed to be kind of the consensus view that it was just a question of, well, is too much stimulus really too much? And some people saying, yeah, it's, we shouldn't do it. And others saying, it's not probably not going to hurt anything. Yeah, it was an interesting article to read. Now, we'll include a link on the website. But the triangulation was interesting. They weren't really debating on where the economy is going to be, right? It was sort of what are the impacts going to be as we move ahead? And so it really was the question of what might happen over the next five or 10 years, right? It was really what are policymakers going to do next? Will they be able to effectively make decisions down the road in light of what we've done in the last... And it's, it's a very interesting debate. It wasn't one that... 
you know, there's a headline. When I read the article, I'm like, oh, this is a, way more insightful than what I initially would have thought. Because Larry Sumner's laid out sort of a 30% chance of this outcome, a 30% chance of this outcome, and a 30% chance of th- that outcome, which was really interesting to see him lay out. I think the headline was something like, Summer says this is the worst fiscal policy <laughs> in the last 40 years or something, or 50 years. <laughs> wasn't that, wasn't that yeah. the gist of it? yeah. So um, also going to mention just a couple articles that we posted this week. Uh, Brent, I'll start this off and you can talk about that one you wrote about the lessons learned. But um, we updated fertilizer prices. Um, you should go read that article. Uh, we have a blog post going to come out about that as well. A couple headlines. I don't want to dive into the charts because I'll spend the whole time talking about it. But it's really a phosphorus story. It's the DAP prices are really causing a majority of the, I think, the pain that producers are feeling. Anhydrous is up, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, they're all up. But it's really the DAP and MAP. Those have really gone up a lot, and they're really driving a lot of the budget changes. It's sort of a, interesting to see how that's playing out, but still a long ways away from those highs we saw back in 2011, 12, 13. But here's another one that I think is interesting to keep an eye on for the economy. Farm fuel prices, right, last spring got below $1.50 a gallon in Illinois, spent a lot of time around $1.60, $1.70. And now they're above 250. So this comes out of the same data set as the fertilizer. And we've graphed all the way back to 2010. Kind of the high era was somewhere around 350 back in 11, 12, 13. A dollar, 250 today, 350 for that 10 year high. We also looked at all gas prices. And it's a very similar story. We had 10 plus year lows, 10 year lows, I guess, last spring. And now we're looking at five, six year highs. So today we're somewhere around. 275, a long ways away from 350, three almost four dollars a gallon back in 2011. But we've moved a lot, and it's kind of an interesting narrative. I'm trying to frame this up, we're sort of a little bit above pre-pandemic levels, but a lot above pandemic lows, and it's that a lot above pandemic lows that's I think causing a lot of the whiplash, and also double look at all the prices. And I think that's the same for fertilizer, right? When you talk about how much fertilizer prices have changed, it's different between fall lows and last spring prices. It's very important to keep that in mind. It really is dramatic how how much they've changed. And yet, you know, you still read a lot of stuff, not as many miles driven, all this talk out there. Uh, and the reality is the prices are shooting higher. Well, here's the, I'm showing the chart here of the West Texas Intermediate. Of course, that traded negative. Spent a considerable amount of time at $20 a barrel, then $40 a barrel. And now it's creeping up above 65. And we talked about that in the fertilizer article as well. These higher energy prices that we're seeing over the last month or two are going to start to impact fertilizer prices six, nine, 10 months down the road as the model we, we follow a lot shares that lag in the data. So Brent, I'll turn it over to you. Talk a little bit about some of these lessons that you learned from Escaping 1980, sort of beyond the, the broader lessons. So one of the things we did in the recap presentation that Sarah and David and I did a webcast, we started off with asked people to write things, if they could send a message back in time to either themselves or to a to a relative, we asked them to write three lessons down that would help that person. I did that myself. It's kind of a compelling thought exercise because what you you don't necessarily want to write a note back and say, well, buy land in, you know, 1984 or five or something, but write down some lessons that are a little more durable because one of the things we have to think going forward is the 1980s are never going to repeat themselves. That, that won't happen. It's not going to be an exact repeat, but 
are there lessons that we could learn from it? And so the lessons I came up with are, you know, the first one is kind of use debt and moderation. And the, the whole point being that there are times when things go haywire. And if you have too much debt at the wrong time, it puts your business at significant risk. And so try and avoid being over leveraged for very long. You know, a lot of times you have to debt's kind of lumpy You take on maybe a little bit more and work to pay it off. Just it's really hard to sustain a high level of debt. Another one was try to run counter cyclical to the crowd. And I think this is pretty clear in the eighties too. One thing is really important to understand is the difference between a demand shock and a supply shock. And supply shocks tend to be very short-lived. Not, I mean, it's not to say it can last for a couple of years, but they tend to resolve themselves. Demand shocks are a little bit harder. They take longer to resolve. One of the things you I think is helpful is to, you don't really know whether you're at a peak or at the bottom of the valley. Don't try and time it perfectly. Just try and to the extent you can at least be aware of what the consensus is and think of why it might be wrong. And I think that's, that's the useful thing to do. The other thing is to not underestimate the likelihood of extreme events. And this is something I think we as humans do all the time. Well, it was a hundred year flood. Well, maybe the hundred year flood isn't really a hundred year flood. I mean, we don't have that many years. You know, it's not like we have millions of years of data on floods to know that with a high degree of certainty, what a hundred year flood actually looks like. If you've only got hundred years of flood data, and it happened once, it doesn't mean it's a one in a hundred probability thing. And I think we tend to underestimate the likelihood of these kind of extreme events, the pandemic being one of them. They can happen without, you know, very much warning. And you want to make sure that your business is resilient enough to handle it. In the 70s and 80s, there were the oil price shocks and then the interest rate shocks that really seem probably like hundred year events. And if you're not prepared to handle those, you can find yourself in a real tough situation. But at the end of the day, the best way to do is be very efficient in your business. I like a quote that you shared in the in the podcast, but also in this article is, you can't be all in all the time. And I think that's that's really important to, to remember. But as you were sharing about hundred, you know, the hundred year event, there's sort of an interesting phenomenon, right? If you say it's a one in a hundred year event, it means that we kind of trick ourselves into thinking it happened once in my life or zero times, right? It's like, how many once in a hundred year events can you have in your lifetime? So maybe there's a flood or maybe there's a fire or a drought. And you're like, oh, we think that we'll only have one of these one in a hundred year events. But like a one in a 50 year event would be twice in our life. And a one in 30 year event might be more than three times in our life. And so it's really interesting. One in a hundred year events really messes up our thinking, I think, a lot, right? We don't think about that, especially when we don't think about how that's a very narrowly defined probability, right? It's, what what does even a one in a hundred year flood mean? We should go do the research on this. And what does that really mean? It means this river and this area, it's only going to get to this high at this point. I don't even know exactly how that comes together, but you have to be careful, right? What does a one in a hundred year drought look like? Well, you can have a, several severe droughts and they all take on different shapes and forms, right? Sometimes they're a flash drought. Sometimes they're, you know, there's hydrological droughts versus agronomic droughts. It's a very, we're going to in the weeds here a little bit, but the idea is consistent is don't let this idea of one in a hundred year event fool your thinking, right? Don't let it let you get complacent about all the risks that are out there. We fool ourselves, I think, a lot by trying to quantify all the risks 
but yet we don't leave space for unknown unknowns. We don't leave space for these things that we don't know they won't occur or, or that we don't know the true frequency or the true randomness or probabilities associated with. Yeah. And I think the eighties are a great example of that. You know, it's hard to say, you know, you sit there and go, well, the, the grain embargo is a pretty random external shock. But if you really think about it, we had tremendous tensions with the Soviet Union at the time to think that they wouldn't get into some kind of a geopolitical spat that might involve trade is probably, you know, naive. Well, we, at you the know, same time, we were building nuclear bomb shelters because we thought they were gonna, one side was going to blow the other side off the map, right? So yeah. not to interrupt you, but yeah, it's a very, yeah, it was kind of naive to think that was a black swan event, to use a common phrase. And the fact that that phrase is so common now tells you that what you're talking about really aren't black swan events. They're just things that happen probably much more likely than we think they will. And the other thing is it's a joint deal. So individually, they may be low probability events, but if you have enough of them happen at the same time, the systems can be very complicated. One last idea. I think we're getting a little long here, but we'll capture it. I want to throw it in here. I want to set this up and I already told you the answer, but I want to set it up here. It's all the listeners can share their expectations. So which of the two scenarios that we outlined do you think is more likely to occur, which is more probable to occur? A, corn yields in 2021 come in below trend. Or B, all the dryness and all the drought that we've seen in the Southwest of the United States intensifies, it expands, and it causes severe yield losses and corn yields fall below trend in 2021. So A or B, which one seems more probable or more likely? Brent, I'll take a stab at explaining this, and you probably have a, a more eloquent way of describing this. Is This is what they call the Linda problem. Um, so Danny Kahneman, I think, stumbled upon this. And it, it, A, right? A is the more probable event. But B is what we often select. And this is called the Linda problem because they ask all these college students, which is more likely to be true about this fictitious person they named Linda. And what they found is that when there was a narrative associated with this, people sometimes got caught up in the narrative and the narrative sort of confirmed their bias and it took all these ways. So thinking about the yield one, there's like a Venn diagram, right? Or a circle of all the ways that yields can be below trend. B is a subset of all the reasons why A can happen, all the reasons why yield can be below trend. So there could be a lot of water. There could be a drought in the East. There could be a drought in the South. But I told you about a drought in the West expanding and intensifying. And that is a subset of all the possible ways corn yields could be below trend. The reason why I bring this up is because I think my bias is that our human brains aren't very good at sifting through narratives and stories. We fall for a good story about every time. This is an example of how a story can impact our thinking when we need to step back and say, okay, there are actually a whole lot of reasons that we have below trend yields in 2021. Let's not get too focused on this one narrative and let that impact how we think about the probabilities of all possible outcomes. Setting up a specific scenery and scenario oftentimes gives a greater sense of precision and, and it falsely encourages us to believe something's more likely than it, than it probably is. I think it's a really good example and something's really important just in your thinking to remember, think through all of it, how much of this is story that's influencing my perception of the situation. Now that we share this with you, <laughs> I actually think this could be a scenario for 2021 because of the drought that's out there. We've been worried about this drought for a long time. And now you can see all the marketing narratives that are going to start to come forward from that. 
Anyway, it's called the Linda Problem. You can Google it. Again, it comes out of Danny Kahneman's work. Um, that's all we have for this week. Thanks so much for joining in. Hoping everyone's having a successful spring so far. Maybe get some field work done. We'll catch you all later. In the meantime, stay curious.